Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. We are once again here in studio at the ANU's Crawford School with my co-host, Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, and a special guest, and I'm going to pass things over to Alan to get us started. Uh, thanks, Darren. Our guest today is someone who really didn't need any directions to find our studio uh, here at the uh, Crawford School because Gordon DeBrow was Professor of Economics in this school from 2000 to 2004 including a period when he was uh, Executive Director of the Australia-Japan Research Centre. Earlier, after completing a PhD in economics at the ANU, he worked for the Reserve Bank in Sydney, one of the great seedbeds of economic uh, policy uh, makers in Australia. In 2001, he left the academic world to join Treasury, where he worked until 2008, This was followed by an appointment as Deputy Secretary in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet from 2008 to 2013, and he had a critical role as Australia's G20 Sherpa during the formative years of that body. From 2013 to 2017, he was Secretary of the Department of the Environment and Energy, and he now serves on government and not-for-profit boards, including the Nature Conservancy. He's a, an honorary professor here at the ANU and lots else as well. In 2018, he conducted a review of the way Australia integrates security, economic interests, Aboriginal cultural heritage and environmental research in the sensitive uh, Woomera protected area. And he was a member of the Thodi Review of the Australian Public Service, which we'll come back to later. In recognition of all this, Gordon DeBrow is a recipient of the Public Service Medal and few Australian public servants can say this, Gordon, a Knight of the French Legion of Honour. How cool is that? Welcome to the podcast, Gordon DeBrow. Thank you very much, Alan and Darren. I'm really uh, honoured to be here. Look, let me begin with a very broad question about the world as it is. Uh, You gave a long and thoughtful speech recently to a Japanese think tank about how we should bring economics and security together. And in it, you said, the world looks a particularly messy place, to which Darren and I would only say, Amen. As we've just heard, your professional career has involved you in economics, the environment, energy, international institution building. So how do you think about what's going on now and what it means for Australia? Yeah, thanks. Look, it is, uh, I said messy, and I use the Japanese word, machakcha uh, in, in Japan, and particularly messy. Uh, I think for economists, I'll go through the economic side and then the security. For economists, we really have conventionally always looked at these standard risks around, you know, is there a balance sheet of a sector, households or the financial sector or government sector out of whack? Are markets themselves out of whack, uh, overpriced? Are there increasing financial vulnerabilities? What are the tensions in development, which always have lots of inherent tensions in them? But we're not just faced with those sort of standard macroeconomic risks. We're faced with a very different political world 
and also a world where the institutions and frameworks that we've taken for granted in the post-war period uh, are under attack. So we've got a lot more nationalism, populism, and it's coming from sort of a good sort of seven or eight countries in the G20, led by the United States, Russia, China, India, Brazil, Mexico, Turkey, kind of a, a range of them, maybe the UK. <laughs> uh, so countries that we'd always counted, a number of them, that we'd always thought were the bulwark the bastion of the international economic system are the ones that are actually out there quite aggressively attacking it. If it's everything from WTO to, to climate change, but also just a rules framework and a, a winner must take all uh, approach as part of that nationalism. On top of that, lots of security concerns and they're, they're intermeshed. And the way they link up economically is often through technology in markets and the role of technology, and they make them vulnerable to cyber attack. And that's also from state actors. Then the security side is always messy. You've got Middle East, Korean Peninsula, disarmament issues. But we've also got a much more aggressive China in the South China Sea, aggressive with cyber, and also a United States that's unpredictable. Think around Syria. We're in a world where we've got all these risks they're almost all on the downside, they're all negative, and they're all kind of connected. So if something goes wrong on, on a trade war, that, that'll impact on growth, it'll impact on the politics. So it's really, it, it's complex in a way that really is, we haven't seen for at least my professional working life on international economic issues, just haven't seen before. Is this worse for Australia than for other places, or are we better off than, uh, than others, do you think? I think it's more difficult for us in the sense that we really do rely on a, on a global system and international frameworks. We're an open economy, so we, we rely on that. But the advantage of us is that we've got these fantastic resource endowments, some real comparative advantages in our economy, and we have lots of good, good domestic institutions and frameworks, so we're pretty resilient. And part of that resilience is big floating exchange rate that moves around by huge amounts. So in a sense, our economic and policy structure and institutions sit as well to deal with shocks or, or uncertainty. It does come down to the mentality we have around how do you deal with it. If the world is messy, do you withdraw? Do you pull back? Or do you get in and do you work with others who you think are like-minded with you to, to fix it, to clean it up or to mitigate uh, some of that messiness? Well, let's talk a bit about how you deal with it, as you just put it. We noted before that you were heavily engaged in the creation of the G20, which was set up with active Australian engagement. That was in one area where we did play a real part in response to the global financial crisis. But in that Tokyo speech, you said, and I'm quoting you here, it's hard to see the same global political and institutional resolve to deal with such a crisis now that we saw in 2008. The G20, let alone the G7 and the BRICS, is not what it once was. So if things do go pear-shaped, to use a technical economic term, with the international economy, what does this mean for the uh, global response? I think with the difficulty with the G20 is that in 2008, we had a variety of tools and instruments. So we had a bit of, governments had fiscal space and they had monetary policy space to deal with a financial and economic crisis. And I think we had a good sense of what the next steps and consequences of each would be. So when you have a financial collapse, you're going to have an economic hit. And if you have an economic hit, you're going to have an employment hit. If you try to fix it, you're going to do it fiscally. But if you go too far, then you've got debt problems and you want to go in and strengthen your markets and open up your markets. So we had kind of a sequence that we could outline of how that thing would unfold. 
Where we are now, a lot less fiscal space or monetary policy space. So lots of government debt and interest rates around zero or below zero in, in major economies. The global apparatus for dealing with the financial crisis is becoming increasingly fragmented and weak. So if you try to think about what we needed 10 years ago and you think about how economies have grown and how capital markets have grown, then you need a lot more resources. And some of the resources we've got will start to disappear because what we agreed 10 years ago was a fixed life and some of that money disappears. So you need a whole lot more money coming in. Then you think about the political will. Everyone was mobilised in 2008, led by the United States, but everyone was mobilised. And if you think, are we in that world, the same political world where leaders will want to find solutions that may cost them a bit and may be difficult for them, but look for collective solutions in a winner must take all political dynamic? Mm -hmm. It's just harder. That's what I mean in that context. All of that said, it doesn't mean you go to your room and you cry. You work methodically and target and talk with others. If we think something's going to happen on finance, then we need to start getting that consensus now. And we need to talk with the Americans and others about what that would be and that it's in their direct national interest that we start to build that up. So you start, I think, now on a lot of that preparatory work and you work with like-minded on some of those issues and you go hard on domestic reform and, frankly, trying to get your economy in shape because the things things could fall apart. There could be an earthquake, you know, in a year or two globally. Mm. I think you just don't walk away, you know, in those circumstances. You, you lean in. How the whole thing could unfold, that's actually, you know, this is where I think it's a limitation of economists. We thought in 2008 we could see the economic consequences of each of these things that I went through, you know, finance, economics, jobs, fiscal. But you couldn't see, we, no one saw, certainly not the economists, that faith in institutions and markets would break yeah, down, yeah. that this was frankly an action by large firms. The large banks largely got us scot-free and they were the ones that were at the heart of the origin of the crisis through really poor credit and really poor control and understanding of derivatives markets. So capitalism didn't work. Markets haven't worked for people. We didn't see the consequences of that and what it would mean for trust and populism. If we're in a world where we've got our particular disciplines, each discipline can kind of see what the next step is, maybe. But all these things are mixed in now. So how do you understand what the political consequences may be and where that would take you or some of the security interplay in that? So it really is a much more multidisciplinary. And it's not one over the other, but it's actually you need to have a broader insight into it to understand the consequences and the next steps. Well, that's a great lead in, Gordon, to the series of questions that I have about how we integrate these different conceptual perspectives and frameworks. And I think in Australia, the debate has largely been framed as of economics versus security. And I think possibly because that's also through a frame of our relationships with China and the United States, our biggest trading partner, our security ally. And so you've been writing and speaking about this, including in the speech that Alan's mentioned, about how we might go about thinking about integrating these different perspectives. But I want to start with two preliminary questions. One, in that speech in Japan, you added a third dimension to economics and national security, and you called that social harmony. So I was wondering if you could get us started with what, what do you mean by that? Uh, how do we know it when we see it? How does it integrate into this story for you? So the, the social harmony could be a little bit clumsy. Maybe it's social well-being. It's your sense of, you know, is your society well-functioning and cohesive and harmonious so that, you know, that it works. That, that's kind of what I meant. 
rather than those Asian concepts of harmony, really it's, everything's consensus driven. Yes, yes. So I don't mean I don't mean that. The, the reason why I tried to highlight the social dimension as well as the economic security is that it really does matter. And I, I'm thinking I'll come back to a country like Australia and this is how you measure it. If we're talking about problems around China and the United States, and we don't talk about the Chinese Communist Party, we tend to talk about China or Chinese interaction or Chinese influence. If you're a Chinese Australian, of whom there are 1.2 million people or 5% of the population, then you hear that as something, it's your part of this. Whereas really these people are Australian and they're they're very loyal. They can be patriots too. Mm. So the more you talk about China and Chinese problems, you create a, a social disconnect and a social problem. And also you make yourself more vulnerable because these are the people as well that you want also actively engaging with China to advance Australia's values and advance Australia's interests and to have them feel that they belong. What I mean here, if you've got areas of social dislocation caused by the way you talk about security or economics, mm-hmm. then that matters and it's detrimental to national well-being and the national interest. So that, that's why I raised that, Darren. You mentioned that the way you talk about it, is this simply a question of sort of how we frame debates or are we actually going to be trading off security and prosperity in some instances for some notion of social harmony? Yeah, Look, maybe it is partly language. I haven't I haven't thought it through. That's mm. I think that's good to have more. We have to have more of a discussion around mm. that and, and what it means on the trade off thing. I think we see things too much in binary terms or trade offs. Mm. A lot of it can achieve security, prosperity, and social ambitions and aims, mm. and a lot of it can be collective. They're not alternatives. They're often complements. And happy to talk about what that, mm. why that's the case. Mm. So I, I wouldn't contrast everything. Everything's got to be a, a trade-off or a cost between mm. the, the different areas. Mm. Often you can get something that's really good where people can participate in their society and they're doing it in their economy and they're helping manage some of the security risks because they're attached to their society. So my other sort of um, preliminary question is sort of a, a question of diagnosis. I presume the reason you're writing and speaking about the need for a new, for new frameworks is because you see um, errors being made in policymaking and outcomes that you see are suboptimal on some dimension. And I'm wondering what precisely is the problem? Is the lack of an integrated approach that can deal with this new complexity leading to biased outcomes in a particular direction? So, for example, are we always biasing our decisions towards security when we should have a more balanced approach? Or is it more that just we having, we're seeing large variance in decisions because they're not being made with a, a proper framework? And so there's lots of different bad decisions, but they're bad in different and unpredictable ways. Yeah. So is it a bias or is it about variance? It's probably both of them, but but I would say there's a bit of bias in the system. Mm -hmm. And it would be, if you're going to raise an issue around security, and what we're talking about now is in our markets and and institutions, what's the, for example, is there subversive Chinese influence or other things? Then that question is always asked from the security frameworks and the security ways of thinking or dealing with problems within government and within cabinet. So the pinnacle of that will be National Security Committee. So that's where it goes. But it's going to be fed through the the Secretary's Committee on National Security, and it'll be done through the Intelligence and and Defence and Foreign foreign Relations Agencies with some some but very limited economic and social involvement. Mm -hmm. So I think institutionally, when you have something that involves a security dimension, even if it's got a lot of economics or it's got a lot of social, it's structured in our system through the security apparatus. And that's the accident of history, is that we've been able to deal with these things separately, largely, 
So instinctively, we start to deal with it through the security apparatus of state, which, which I support. <laughs> I've got no problem with that. But you don't bring the full range of perspectives to the issue. And that's what's really important for government decision making, that you've got the full range of interests, that they're there on an equal footing, and it's not only through the prism of the others. Mm. I, I would find this as objectionable if the security issues were only dealt with through an economic lens. Mm. Mm-hmm. or the economics and security issues were dealt only through a social policy or a social lens. Mm-hmm. It's nothing about anti-security in any way. I have a question about sort of policy-making structure, but I'll stick with concepts just for a moment more. And you've raised this, uh, the idea of, of mitigation strategies. So when you have a particular risk, a security risk, perhaps one needs to look to the economic domain or the social domain to find a mitigation strategy to reduce that risk. And I think everyone should agree agree that's sensible, including those from the security community. And so you, for example, in your speech in Japan, you proposed the idea that strengthening market systems, market mechanisms can support cooperation and that can have positive benefits. One of the challenges we face, though, and this is a security critique of this idea is that sometimes markets fail and create new vulnerabilities that didn't exist before or dependencies that can then in themselves create new security problems. From someone who comes from the, the economic domain, how do you sort of find a middle ground and reach out through this idea of mitigation to sort of reach those security skeptics, I suppose? Yeah. So I think if you think about some of the examples of when people raise there's a security concern and how would you do it, it's helpful to people to put that in practical examples of how would you actually do it. And I thought in that paper, I've got to try to go through a couple, but one's around infrastructure investment and the Belt and Road. And is that really just a way for countries to gain leverage over others? I've got a fair bit of discussion around that. If you really thought that was the case, then actually the way you'd mitigate it is that you'd reduce the power of that country or countries by having a range of investors in in infrastructure. So you'd have an open system as much as possible. You'd also look to improve the governance. So you'd have genuine cost-benefit analysis of a project. You'd have transparency. You'd have open bidding. You'd have a dispute resolution mechanisms built in, and we've got plenty of those globally, informal and formal. You'd have all of that designed as part of the apparatus mm-hmm. by which foreigners could invest in, in infrastructure or provide infrastructure. All of that stuff, they're all your kind of your standard stock economic tools for improving economic outcomes. Mm-hmm. They also help you deal with the security risks. And you can think, I'd say, more generally around investment, technology, those other things, Economists talk a lot around you, you get a better, mar- a much better market if you have more players. Also, you can deal with security risks. If you have more players in a market and you're worried that a foreign government's going to use one of their national firms to influence that market or steal data or do something nefarious, then their power, their leverage in that market, their ability to do that, frankly, is reduced by having more players in that market. So it's kind of a standard economic thing of you want diversity and strength in your markets. That helps you get better economic outcomes. But it also weakens the power, the leverage that foreign governments may exercise through their firms. And that's good for you on a security basis. So I think it makes it more practical. You talk about markets fail. Well, they do. And that's actually one of the beauties because you get a self-correcting mechanism. Governments also fail. State intervention also fails. We've got plenty of examples of where that just leads to disaster. So the idea that you're not going to get things going wrong, no, we will. We will. 
the idea that you can control every aspect of this, every lever, and make sure that everything's mm. perfect, uh-uh-uh. And I thought when people talk about what's the, that's the nature of you know, cyber penetration attack, mm. you can't eliminate that risk. You can never eliminate risks. What you can do is try to mitigate them and manage them, identify them, and also have systems in place to deal with it when it goes wrong and when there is failure. Markets fail all the time. That's actually, we say that's a good thing because it's a driver of, it's Schuppeterian, you know, it's creative destruction, it's innovation, it's all of that. But it actually is probably a better handling strategy overall for dealing with risks of failure. We have discussed in recent episodes on the podcast some of the more sensational stories that have been splashed across the pages of our newspapers and, and on programs like 60 Minutes regarding China. And the idea that fear and the secret spy angles that relate to China sell and they're prominent incentives for media organisations in particular. And But that in turn creates a narrative in the public discourse that is fearful, that is mistrustful. And Alan and I lament what what a poor boffany policymakers like ourselves to do to try to influence policy when we're battling against such loud noises, I suppose. Do you have any thoughts about how you one can cut through? I mean, what you've said is very sensible. And if one takes the time to read you know, your speech, you know, there's a lot of excellent ideas in there. How do we cut through to the politics of it, do you think? Do you have any ideas for us? <laughs> yeah, I'm not very uh, – I was a public servant and I wasn't a politician. <laughs> and I think that's one of – as I said, that was uh, one of the great learnings of the failure. Uh, you don't ask economists to do communication strategy. <laughs> uh, the way you help them is you get out there and talk about the issues. So, frankly, the reason I did that, I do op-eds, is because I think you need to have someone or a range of people talking about these things. And naturally, I thought there's more interest in these other views or people will say this singular risk. Well, it's much more complex and there are ways of dealing with it and you just got to start talking about it. And maybe people who are better communicators than I am can go out and say you can do something with your institutions, your markets, or it really matters how you deal with people, how you treat people. One of our greatest assets is the, the 1.2 million Chinese Australians. Actually, that's one of our huge assets. It's not a liability, it's an asset. And it means that we can understand and engage. So you just need to populate that public conversation again and again and again on, yeah. on those things. So fight back. Fight, you know, <laughs> you never accept, you don't accept the reality. You don't accept those circumstances. We had Dennis Richardson on the podcast. It was about a year ago now, obviously a former Secretary of, of Defence and of DFAT. And we asked him this question about the structure of decision-making and whether we needed new structures in the way we do national security or cabinet that would better integrate these different perspectives. And you've given us a taste of, of, of what you believe, but my understanding or my interpretation of what Dennis said was that he was sceptical that structural changes could resolve what were fundamentally differing worldviews, that creating some new set of architecture wasn't going to eliminate those differences. You've called for specific bureaucratic arrangements. So could you sort of talk a bit about what your ideas are and why? you think they might actually make a difference. Yeah, I, I do agree with Dennis. So I modified You, you my, do agree with Dennis? No, no, partly. partly. Oh, okay. I, I agree. And then I'm going to go on to say how I disagree. Okay. <laughs> I, I really uh, got a lot of time of respect for Dennis. Look, he, he's right in the sense that institutional structures themselves won't resolve a problem. You still have to deal with the issue. And that's all true. So, of course, I take it. But all of that said, they can help you frame the issues. They can help you think through them. They can bring different parties to the table to have a discussion, and then you can maybe find a resolution to how do you deal with it. So it's not the solution in itself, 
but it helps you lean into finding a solution. And I think there are a couple of dimensions to that. And, and I've, I see that the places that I've seen around the world, and this is what did this in the public service review, of who deals well with the economics and security issues structurally and, and socially, Singapore, actually. And they've got a couple of things that they move people around a lot. Mm. They, they mix them up. They, they mash them together so they know each other, which is really important. And then they do things like scenario analysis, I mean, genuine scenario analysis, where they sit down and think these are the forces, these are the things that are going on in the world in all the different dimensions, you know, insecurity and economics and social dimension, all of that. And what do we do about it? Where could it take us and what would we do about it? And they have to work through the things themselves, not come up where the economist comes to the security person and says, you've got to finger waves like I'm doing now, Darren, <laughs> and says, you've got to do this. Or the security person says, does the same and basically forces a resolution or a solution onto the economics and social side, which is a little bit of what we see sometimes. That might be the only comment I regret. <laughs> but, you know, they, they have to come up with a solution together and they have to find it. That's a different way of solving problems. And you can do that. Ministers do that too, not just the, the, the officials. So how you bring people to the table, how you frame the problems, how you think about solutions, what would be your action plan? What are the no regret steps? What are the things you do now with the consequence to maybe you've got to change it a little bit later on or whatever? All of that helps you find something that's in the national interest. Simply saying governance doesn't matter. I don't think that helps, frankly. But it's, as Dennis said, it's not the silver bullet. It's not going to solve everything for you. Gordon, listening to your answer, it made me think of the White House's National Security Council, which has economists working in it, often who come from Treasury and other economic agencies that provide integrated advice with regular national security specialists to the president. What specifically do you have in mind for, for this kind of integration? I thought the White House does it well, and I just note that the, the Deputy National Security Advisor... When Sorry, I was... did you just say the White House does it well? No, no, uh, sorry, in the past, uh, structurally. I mean, sorry. On <laughs> in this, the past. Okay. In the past. Okay. Uh, no, 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 right. sorry. Good, yeah, good. Sorry. no. You had in, me in worried for a moment. I, I think about the days when Mike Froman, for example, was the G20 Sherpa. He was also the Deputy National Security Advisor. And so you had this really nice linking in together under Obama of economics and security. Still over a security frame, but lots, lots of economics built into it. And people who knew economics and lived it and breathed it. So what would you do differently in Australia? I think ideally it goes back to cabinet and national security committee does the regular security issues, the defence, intelligence, some of those operational issues. But you need a higher level strategy committee of senior security, economics and social ministers under the prime minister who brings all of that big debate together, which is the practical debate around foreign investment, around education, around infrastructure, dual use technology, critical infrastructure. They are not things you can answer solely through that cabinet lens of security. You need to then mirror that in the bureaucratic administrative arrangements. And that's really the, the central role of the Prime Minister's Department. And what I've argued for, including on the APS review panel, was having a, an integrated strategy office within the Prime Minister's Department that would bring those things together for the cabinet. And it's not in the economics domain, it's not in the security or the social, it's a separate standalone, but it's the clearinghouse of all of that. And that goes back to PMNC's central role, frankly, as 
how do you really bring and balance together these various interests across government for ministers? For and government. the other departments are feeding into that integrated strategy yes. office, seconding yes. their own people into it? If you second, yeah, of course, I think you have to second because PMC never has uh, sufficient expertise. But it's not like you've got a treasury person in there and a DFAT person in there and the defence and the intel or the social policy. They can draw off the system. But it's not like you've got a, a, a vote because I really don't like the way, frankly, the tradition of how does DFAT exercise or how do DFAT officers operate in the Prime Minister's department. I don't like the idea. They, they should be working for PMNC. They shouldn't be working for DFAT. So if you're working in PMNC, you work for the Prime Minister, the, the Secretary of that. Yeah, this goes back a while now. But when I certainly when I was head of international division in uh, PMNC a long, long time ago, you had to resign from your original department in order to work at PMNC. And I've always thought that, that was a sensible arrangement rather than relying on uh, secondment. Well, look, that brings us precisely to the APS and to the review, the 30 review that you were a member of. This gave you a great opportunity to look at the public service from a great heart, but also I imagine to drill down into the detail. So I was just wondered if you could talk to us about what you found, what problems you saw and as someone who'd worked inside at a senior level, were you surprised by any of the conclusions you came to? Yeah. So on what we saw, we started off with a really radically and dynamically changing world. So digital and data, technology, the impact of that's going to be profound. It means that the whole range of service delivery, and we're starting to see this with what's happened over the past year around Services Australia, but Service delivery can be profoundly different. It can be highly personalised and, and really work for the person, which is actually the ultimate aim of policy. Data can profoundly inform policy. So you get a lot more information that can really use to, to target policy and, and delivery, make delivery work. So data and, and the workforce, 150,000 people who work in the Australian Public Service, we had stuff done for us that 40% of the tasks that will the APS will perform over the next decade will become automatable. So, wow. you know, that own workforce is changing. Mm -hmm. Now, that just mirrors everything you see in the economy <laughs> everywhere, that profound impact of data and digital. The, the changing geopolitics that we talked about, especially, again, strategic competition between the United States and China and both of them off the reservation in their own special ways. Trusting government and public, we've heard more about that this week, really diminishing trust, changing nature of work, how people want to work is, is changing. All of those things are really profound things that over the next 10, 20 years impact or affect the, the, the public service, but also how they provide advice and how they implement policy. So you've got to change that workforce to, to do all that. You know, we had over 11,000 conversations ourselves and with others around all of these things. So you heard a lot. A lot of respect for the service, some really great people, some real extraordinary uh, capability and trialling and all of that, but also probably a, a sense of exhaustion, a bit risk averse, a bit nervous, not strategic, not really thinking of how do we engage and prepare. So a few downsides and then the thing of the whole point of the review is what do you do to fix that? Mm. And, and I, I think we've got a coherent, good set, and I would say very credible set of responses to, to deal with that. In terms of the public service and what you saw, you know, I, um, I had a pretty good sense of the service, but the, the helicopter view meant that you could really test things. And so I, I think there are some 
extraordinary bits where technology is used and really, really good thinking. This, the, the degree of commitment from people that you see. But I go back to this thing of, of exhaustion and license, people's sense of license. One of the things that I, I thought was most profoundly disappointing was that people want to be licensed or told or allowed to do their thing. And they say their operating license you know, is tighter. Well, no, you, you create your own operating license. Thank you very much. If you're, especially if you're senior and that you, you don't have to rely on someone author, so, uh, the authorising environment. You don't have to rely on someone authorising you. You've got all of this in the acts that says around policy and around delivery and administration. Get on and do it. You know, I, I think there's a sense we've gone through a decade or more of a lot of political instability been actually kind of exhausting. It's worn down, to my mind, it's worn down the service. And then people think there's lots of change. How can I be strategic where there's lots of hopping around? Well, you can. You know, you think about what the forces are and you you, you talk with your minister and engage with your minister around what could be not just the next step, but the step after that to achieve an outcome. So I really enjoyed it. And I, I came out with a, a very profound respect, Alan, but also since people need to take control of their lives. <laughs> well, look, let's talk about one of the consequences of that political instability that you talked about. You served four prime ministers uh, closely. I mean, you worked with others, but four closely in Kevin Rudd, Julie Gillard, Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull. They were very different types. They wanted quite different things from the public service. So how did you cope with that? And how do you lead committed public servants, and you had a lot of them in, uh, in the Department of Environment and Energy uh, through things like that. Yeah, probably mostly acutely felt under those four prime ministers on climate change policy. I, I worked closely with the four of them on that, T two of them from within PM&C and two of them running the Department uh, of the Environment, which was responsible for domestic climate change policy. Well, the way I thought about it myself, the way I dealt with it myself, and the way I talked about it with other people was that you're a public servant, and public service is a profoundly important public institution, and its role is to support the democratic choice of the people. And it's something very deep in me, and it doesn't mean it's not related to what my personal views are around any of those individuals or around their policies. It's actually that this is something that's really important for the country, and that's part of the, the role of service. And I was always really proud to be a public servant, and I was I loved the idea of a vocation of, of service. So it fits it fits my values, and you could talk to people about that. With all these big changes and profound changes in climate change policy, that would be the anchor. These are democratically elected governments. And they've got a clear mandate on these things and, and let's, you know, we have to do it. All of that said, when there were big changes and, and some of those changes, the, the failure of the CPRS or the, the PM Gillard's program, when that was brought down and there's kind of like a generalised pricing model for mm. the externality of carbon and replacement with uh, a, a different set of policies. We did have philosophical conversations around the nature of policy interventions and policy systems. The, what, what governments had experimented with under Rudd and Gillard was a generalised solution. You frame the problem of this externality of carbon, carbon emissions, and how do you have a price? Then you can see all the dynamics that flow through from the economy. So it's a, it's a high level generalised solution. That collapsed. And frankly, I think it collapsed when the world price of, of carbon credits collapsed. 
in the early 2010s. Once the euro price went to about $5, $6 Australian, and our price was $25, that was just completely untenable. So the circumstances that led to that, which were not deterministic, could have been very different, but the circumstances that led to that broke the credibility of that system. What, what the governments then moved to was actually a step-by-step, let's, let's take it bit by bit, and we'll adjust our system as we get there and we'll bring in new instruments. So a much more pragmatic instrument focused, but multiple instrument focused approach. And that's what was resonating more with the politics. So maybe I'm, I'm not being clear about this, but you've got different forms of, in, of intervention. And we had this grand one that, that didn't work. And maybe it could have, but it didn't. And we're going to try these other things. So the conversation with myself and with others then was, well, what are the next steps? What do they involve? And you talk and engage with your minister around that and, and certainly did an awful lot of that. And th- those ministers were very involved. So it's really, uh, again, that step-by-step pragmatic side of it. It's also on, on climate change. When mitigation policy was so disputed of trying to say the other side of climate change policy, which is adaptation and risk mitigation. And we really need to start focusing on that because Frankly, over the past 70 years, we've already had one degree of warming, or, or uh, 70, years, 70 years or longer, but really, we certainly know over 70 years. That's already changing the natural environment. You can see that. We can see it already, and you can see it in the future what, where the modelling takes us. I already know over my lifetime that, and this is, this is I'm thinking, I've got the graphs in my head because that's how I see things, of the, the variability and the volatility in temperatures over time, and what were the peaks in the past around a rising mean are now the troughs around the rising mean. So we, we've got a problem and how do you deal with it? It affects everything from land and water to infrastructure to human health to the nature of crises and resilience in the face of natural resource, uh, natural shocks or, or storms or, or fires. So we really need to have a conversation and then give people a sense there are other areas where you can lean in. If you think that you can't lean in on mitigation policy, that we've reached a bit of a stalemate in this country for a while on mitigation policy, you can lean in more on adaptation and resilience. That describes the problems and the and the way you address them. But we've just seen an extraordinary dramatic beginning to a summer of drought and fire. Why has Australia been so conspicuously bad at developing effective public policy on climate change? You know, the underlying national reason why why we're unable to develop an effective response. I really don't know, Alan. We We didn't have to have been in this situation. It was particular political circumstances around Rudd, then around Gillard, and then around Abbott and and Turnbull that just made the politics work really well to divide and make this a divisive issue. It was it's not deterministic. It could have been in a different position. If the Greens had taken a different view of the CPRS or or the Libs on, on that with, with Labor, if there'd been a deal done, a grand a grand bargain or something. I know at that time because you could see what each of the parties was playing in and if they'd played it differently, maybe we would have ended up in a different spot. So I don't think we had to have ended up here on this. I think what it's, what's happened is that it's fed so deeply then into the political debate and it's been so polarised because there's been exaggerated statements on both sides 
on, on the right and the left around it. And that just locks in the other side even more. It polarises. It's become the thing that's then polarised social views. And it, it's how the political parties define their tribe. And we've got more tribalism in, in our politics. So if you're conservative, you can't tolerate the word green because it's actually a political party. And climate change is tied to the left. It's a Green and Labor thing. So it's it's become tribalised. The thing is, what do you do about it? I think you, you start again, continually go back to facts, back to analysis, back to the lived experience of people, talk through what the consequences really are around human health, around land and water and natural disasters, all of those things. And you, just, you have to talk about it because then people will think, oh, well, We've got to do something about it. And mitigation is actually part of the strategy of doing something about it. Well, tribalism seems to be becoming a theme of this podcast in uh, in various ways. Gordon Dubrow, it's been terrific to have you here. Many thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, oh th- thank you very much, Alan and Darren. That is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We want to thank AAA intern Isabel Hancock for research and audio editing, XC Chong and James Hain for research support, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music, and also Julia Arends for technical support in studio. Thanks, and talk to you again soon.